Die with Sally, a podcast that takes a closer look at some of the most interesting technology stories on artificial intelligence and machine learning. We'll hear about the latest in hardware and software that has a big impact on the world of AI. I'm your host, Sally Ward-Foxton. In this episode, we'll have some highlights from EE Times AI Everywhere conference, which was held a couple of weeks ago. It was a virtual event focused on AI in the data center, AI at the edge, and AI for the IoT, or TinyML. I'll also be speaking to Cerebra's CEO, Andrew Feldman, about building an AI system that's the same scale as the human brain, algorithmic bias, and what Cerebra's is going to do next, among other topics. You can hear the full interview later in this episode. But first, here are some of the best bits from our recent AI Everywhere event. AI Everywhere was split into three streams, which broadly covered Edge AI, TinyML, and Data Center AI. Opening up our Edge AI stream was ABI Research Principal Analyst, the NGS Sue. He presented an informative overview of the Edge AI market, the key players and trends, and the effect the global pandemic has had on this sector. Here's the NGS talking about key trends in Edge AI hardware. There is very little doubt that smartphone and smart homes will remain the two largest market for edge AI. At the same time, the potential of autonomous vehicles brings sky-high expectation and market valuation for many edge AI companies. However, the slow rollout of our autonomous vehicles and the um, stagnation of the smartphone market has led many vendors to seek new growth opportunities beyond this um, market that I mentioned just now. Many vendors has pivoted to industrial applications and, and other mobility-centric applications. For example, Intel, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, and Halo has partnered with many edge computing vendors to offer AI-in-the-box solutions for companies that want to make their legacy infrastructure smarter. Vendors has also introduced dedicated solution for robotics and drone applications. In addition, the industry itself has also witnessed many partnerships between hardware and software vendors. These relationships are generally symbiotic in nature as they encourage the exchange of domain expertise and open up new market opportunities for, vet- for vertical specific vendors. Our keynote speakers for the TinyML track delved into the world of ultra low power AI. We were honored to be joined by Marion Verhelst. She's associate professor at the University of Leuven and scientific director at IMEC. Her presentation was full of valuable information about cutting edge microprocessor architectures for running neural networks at ultra low power. She also spoke about ZigZag, a software tool her team's developed, which helps designers compare how hardware with different architectures, different memory hierarchies, different data paths, how the different combinations will be able to run different neural networks in an energy efficient way. This is a hard problem, she said, since lower precision and increasingly parallel chips can improve energy efficiency, but it's at the cost of flexibility. Here's a clip of Professor Verhelst explaining more about ZigZag. So to solve this bottleneck, what we developed in our university is a tool called ZigZag. And at the core, ZigZag is a very rapid analytical cost model. So it takes in a neural network workload, It takes in a hardware architecture uh, with memory hierarchy, data path, even technology characteristics. 
And based on this combination, it tries to estimate the energy it would cost to run the workload on this R-specific architecture, how much latency or clock cycles it would take, and what area of this architecture is. And of course, as I just showed you earlier, you cannot just say, I take the workload, I map it on the architecture. No, there is many different ways to map one specific workload, even one layer of the neural network on the hardware architecture. This has to do with what loops do I unroll spatially? What loops do I unroll temporally? Um, what um, do data do I put in SRAM register file level one memory, level two memory, and so on. What our tool does, it takes a neural network workloads, tries to find all possible good mappings and schedules. It's, it's trying out millions of such schedules on the hardware architecture for each of them estimates energy latency area and then comes with a set of Pareto optimal solutions that give you for this neural network workload in this technology under these hardware constraints, what is the best time per inference, energy per inference and so on I can achieve. The data center stream kicked off with a fascinating keynote presentation from David Cantor, Executive Director of ML Commons, the organization responsible for the MLPerf performance benchmarks for AI systems. David studied several years of MLPerf results to give us some fascinating insight into how the performance of machine learning systems in the data center is improving and the main factors driving this forward. So I went through uh, the first three rounds of MLPerf and I took a look at uh, identical hardware, but with evolving software. So the question is, as we upgrade the software, what can we get out of these systems? And so it's actually quite astonishing here. As you can see, in many cases, we're getting 2x better performance out of the same hardware through just improving the software. That's pretty fantastic. Our other data center keynote presentation came from Mukesh Kare at IBM Research. Mukesh gave a great overview of what IBM Research is working on at its AI Hardware Center facility. This is some of the research that will go towards IBM's ambitious goal of extending AI compute performance 2.5x per year through 2025. IBM Research is planning to achieve this in the short term using digital electronics combined with algorithmic work in ultra-low precision compute. Its longer-term efforts focus on analog AI hardware, Mukesh talked about some of the process innovations that are helping to develop this analog AI compute capability, including PCM, phase change memory, and ECRAM, electrochemical RAM technology. Here's IBM's Mukesh Kare. So on the inference side, we have used uh, PCM technology and improved it uh, by using what we call projected PCM technology, which is essentially a carefully designed layer to address some of the non-ideality or uh, resistant drift that you see if you directly use the PCM element uh, in this uh, analog compute for inference. And we definitely do not want this drift uh, to happen you know, every time you are you know, uh, going and leveraging and going through the inference using this uh, uh, model in the analog domain now. On the right-hand side, we are developing materials uh, uh, so that uh, these materials can be used to store thousands of weights uh, uh, or thousands of different states as, uh, as uh, you know, the, the Duke Neural Network is uh, programming. And we are using some of the oxygen, you know, fundamental understanding of oxygen vacancy creation and elimination that we learned from high K metal gate technology 
in this technology and we are using a resistive ram uh, material system but modifying it so that you can get this symmetrical uh, you know behavior as you are applying more and more pulses we are also developing a technology called ec ram or electrochemical ram technology which has been around a kind of leveraging some of the principles around battery technology however we have figured out a way to to integrate it into a cmos compatible wafer if you missed the ee times ai everywhere event all of the ai everywhere content is now available on demand including full versions of all the keynotes we've been talking about plus keynotes from NXP's Ron Martino, Siemens, Anup Saha, and Zach Shelby from Edge Impulse, plus technical presentations and panel discussions. It's all available on demand at www.ai-everywhereforum.com until the end of October. Now, it's not every day you see a chip as big as a dinner plate, but that is what AI chip startup Cerebrus has produced. One chip the size of an entire wafer, built especially for the computing problems that AI presents. The company's recently extended its mammoth system with external memory such that one system can hold the same number of parameters as the human brain. I recently caught up with Cerebus CEO Andrew Feldman, who gave me the lowdown on what this actually means, what algorithms do well and what people do badly, and what Cerebus is going to do next. For listeners who, who might not be familiar with Cerebrus and the, the wafer scale engine, perhaps you could just tell us a, a bit about what you do or a bit about the uh, the biggest chip in the world as it stands. Well, th- that's a perfect lead-in. Thank you. Uh, Cerebrus is a, a Silicon Valley-based uh, company. Uh, we have nearly 400 employees and offices in Toronto, uh, Silicon Valley, San Diego, and Tokyo. We build... Uh, a new type of, of computer optimized for AI work. And uh, we, we aimed not to be a little bit better, not to be twice as fast or three times as fast, but to be a hundred or a thousand times faster at, uh, at AI work. And to do that, we, we solved the problem that had been unsolved in the computer industry for its 70 year life. We solved the challenge of building very, very large chips. Until we came along, uh, the largest chip was about 800 square millimeters, and that's about the size of a postage stamp. And we we built a a chip, uh, and we announced it in in August of 2019, that's 46,000 square millimeters, so it's the size of a dinner plate. And in this work, in AI work, larger chips process information more quickly, producing answers in less time. And so, uh, what we do is we, we we build these large chips. We we put them in a in a system of our design, uh, creatively called the the, the CS2 for Cerebra Systems 2, and uh, that's delivered to the customer. It's about uh, 16 15 rack units tall, so it's 26 inches. I'm not sure how to do the conversion to, to metric for you, Sally. What is that? It's okay. Now? Is that 11,000 centimeters or something like it's, that? It's something like that, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, fits in a standard data center rack and uh, re- replaces hundreds or thousands of GPUs. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, big, the biggest chip in the world, certainly the biggest AI chip in the world, I mean, there's nothing like it. Uh, but I think one thing that caught my eye recently was that you've announced – 
a memory box, a box of external memory that you can add to the CS2 uh, to make it to make the system even bigger or to make the system, you know, the size of a human brain. Um, what does this really mean and why do we need a brain size system for AI? Well, I, I, I think uh, brain scale is, is an analogy. Um, I, I think it should be certainly taken with a grain of salt. But let, let's think about it this way. Um, in 2019, the largest AI model had order 300 million parameters. And, and per parameters you can think of as sort of independent variables. Um, uh, uh, in, the, in the brain concept, you can think of them as synapses. Um, uh, in, by 2020, uh, the end of 2020, the, the, the largest models had between 175 billion parameters and a trillion parameters. And so what you'd seen over a two-year period was a 1,000x growth in the equivalent of synapses. Obviously, they're not strictly the same as synapses, and there's lots of, of, of mushy area, but roughly speaking, parallel to, to synapses. So what we've been able to do is build networks that required uh, a thousand times more, uh, more storage and also required more than a thousand times more compute to train. And this was in a two-year period. So those of us who grew up and, and sort of cut our teeth in, in the, the, the 90s, we, we, we loved Moore's Law, and we were getting a doubling every 18 months. And there, this is a 1,000x on two dimensions, on the amount of memory you need and the compute resources you need in a two, two-and-a-half-year period. And that's brutal. And what's more, uh, the guys at OpenAI show that uh, there are some really good reasons to believe continuing to make these models larger continues to improve them. And so um, we, we, we set about thinking that if the requirement was uh, for the future, was that you had to support uh, vastly more, a hundred or a thousand times the current state of the art, larger models that would require vastly more memory. And you'd have to build much, much bigger clusters. And so uh, we began working on technology that, that solved both of those. And in, uh, what was it, uh, a month and a half ago, two months ago, we announced uh, these two new technologies that allowed us to use external memory to, to add a, an appliance, a memory appliance to our system and to for it to behave as though that memory was on wafer. And that moved us from, uh, uh, it moved us to a, a hundred times larger than the current state of the art. The largest network ever trained is a trillion parameters and we can now support 120 trillion parameter model. Now, the, the estimates from neurobiologists and neuroscientists are that, that the human brain has on the order of 100, 120 trillion synapses. And so we've moved from the range of, I don't know, a mouse-sized brain at a trillion uh, 
synopsis to a human scale brand. Now, I I, I want to be clear that, that we're not talking about singularity. We're not talking about um, sort of generalized artificial intelligence. What we're talking about is some way to get our heads around what it means to have this many synapses um, and to provide some sort of r- rough metric. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm sort of uh, on the sidelines in the debate about generalized artificial intelligence. I, 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 right now, we, we just want to do better with uh, the artificial intelligence we have. We want it to solve problems with higher accuracy. We want it to be applicable to more uh, more problems uh, and for it to uh, move our society forward t- towards solutions in, in health and, and, and other major societal problems. But what we were able to do is to, to, to move the state of the art by two orders of magnitude. And, and that's rare. And one of the, the most exciting things, Sally, about being in the AI space right now and being in a in, in a industry that's early, it's nation, right? Is that you're not eking out 20% gains, that your big idea can come along and can help move an industry by orders of magnitude. And, and that, that's the, the, the great joy and the pleasure in, in, in early uh, industries. I mean, there's a lot of hard things. There are no standards and, and, and there's foment and, and the open source community is zigging and zagging and you're going to try and hold on to the lion's tail. Um, but on the flip side is when you get it right, you, you can make giant leaps. And that, that's what we've done. So listeners who might be thinking, you know, still, what do I need such a massive, massive scale AI system for your customers are doing things like drug discovery, right? This is cutting edge science. I, I think um, we have customers in um, m- many, uh, many verticals in heavy manufacturing, in life sciences, um, in basic research, um, in, in military intelligence. Uh, we, we are uh, solving hard, hard problems. And those are in drug discovery, those are in genomics. Uh, practical problems in uh, material science and the development of new materials. Um, you know, what do you need a new material for? You need new materials to design batteries. And uh, the problems of energy storage are, are enormously important in today's society. Um, th- these problems are uh, being uh, formulated so that AI can gain purchase on them. And th- these we're seeing AI creep into our lives in uh, ways large and small. I mean, I have a a, a seven year old uh, uh, granddaughter, and 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 you know, Netflix is is picking cartoons for her uh, via uh, an AI algorithm. And I have an eighty eight year old mother in law, and she's asking Alexa to play Frank Sinatra, and and Alexa's putting together a Frank Sinatra playlist that includes songs that my mother-in-law forgot she liked, and, right? And you think of that, and, and w- w- when when a, a technology has crept into demographics at both ends of the life spectrum, uh, it's behind the, the, the mapping software you use to, 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 to find the, the shortest route to uh, wherever you're going and the self-driving parts of your car. Right? It, it is creeping into sort of unbeknownst to us, it's creeping into all these different parts of the way we 
uh, live, work, and play. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, thanks for clarifying, by the way, that we're not at the singularity, uh, even though we, we have an AI, that, well, or an AI system the size of a brain. Well, uh, we're, we're not, and, and, but I, I think, you know, you, you, the things that GPT-3, which is the largest trained model, can do are, are breathtaking. Um, they're breathtaking. And I, I think uh, it, it, it is able to, uh, to, to do things that, that are astonishing, uh, but they, they aren't generalized intelligence. Um, yeah. and, yeah. and they aren't the parts of humanity that, that, that I care most about. I mean, compassion and imagination. And, um, the, these are, right, it, it, it is a, a machine that, that uh, uses information to generate other information. Yeah. And I, I, I think what what our thinking over the next you know decade will be about is um, sort of an honest evaluation about what what we're good at and what we're not good at is, is the human brain. And it, it's, it's not super good at, at sifting through vast amounts of data. Yeah, it, it has a set of cognitive biases that have been described by Kahneman and Tversky and everybody who's who sort of copied them for generations. And we, we can use these tools of artificial intelligence to, to help remedy some of the weaknesses. You know, we have biases in our hiring. We have biases in, in many of the ways we behave. And we've known about these biases and we've been unable to fix them in people. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it turns out people are really hard to fix. Algorithms, <laughs> algorithms less so. Um and I, I have great faith that uh, far from uh, perpetuating biases, that what we will see with artificial intelligence is that they remedy them. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you're right. Uh, I know that's uh, something people often criticize uh, from outside the industry. You know, it's uh, AI is so biased. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's something uh, people, are, I mean... You're right. We're kind of still at an early stage with this, right? The problem, Sally, is is it's it, it's not interesting to say people are so biased <laughs> compared yeah. to what, right? The, the question isn't can we build perfectly safe self-driving cars. The question is can we build self-driving cars that produce fewer casualties than people yeah. do when they drive? Exactly. Can we build self-driving cars? Um, you know, we could be safer if we didn't let people do their makeup in the car or talk on the cell phone or text or fight with their spouse or whatever. We, we know, but that's not humans, right? If we, if we said you could never drink when you drive. And, but what we know is that even after we say it, people do these things. Yeah. And so what, 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 what the, the honest question should always be is, can we do better than we're currently doing? Not can we be perfect? Can we do better than we're currently doing? And can we put ourselves on a trajectory to be to do even better still? Sure. And I, yeah, I, sure. I think the, the beauty of, of, of mathematics and algorithms is uh, when you when you fix them, they stay fixed. They stay fixed. Where, whereas each generation of teenagers, you have to teach again not not to drink and drive. Yeah. Um, uh, right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And each generation of new drivers, you've got to remind and teach and explain the challenges of, of talking on the phone and, and 
being in a fight with your partner. And, and each of these ha- has to be redone. Whereas when a fleet of artificial intelligence driven cards learns something where a pothole is, suddenly all of them know that. And that, that's true for radiology, reading film, right? The, the way it's done today is a, a radiologist has an insight and maybe he or she writes it up in, a, in the New England Journal of Medicine and, and maybe some tiny fraction of the other radiologists read it and, and maybe it gets picked up at a few universities in their radiology programs. But when, when, when a, an AI gets better uh, at reading film, all films read by that AI get better and they never have a bad day. And, you know, they never had a sleepless night, had a sick kid, had a pet that kept them up at night. Um, yeah. And so we, we always need to compare with uh, reality, compare with uh, what humans are doing. And I, I think we will frequently find that at many of these tasks, these repetitive data intensive tasks, uh, AIs are just much better and can be made better still with careful, thoughtful work. Yeah. I think a lot of people's fear stems from uh, you can't argue with an algorithm or you can't make ask for an exception or you can't uh, you can't get it to change its mind. <laughs> yeah, that, that's good and bad, right? Yeah, um, depending on the situation. Yeah. That, that's good and bad. Um, you know, there are different definitions of fairness. Um, some is that the same rules apply to everybody and, and other notions of fairness is that each individual situation should be treated separately and differently. But both yeah. are knowledges of fair uh, of versions of fairness. The, the version that, that, that AI uh, subscribes to is that, that all data should be treated sort of equally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, going back to the brain for a second. Um, I mean, it's not. Should should we really compare uh, what we've got with uh, a Cerebrus CS2 and a human brain? A human no. brain is doing all different kinds of tasks, no, very low human, power. The, the, a CS2 the is a kilowatts the, the range, magical, you know. The, but the at the same time, I'm not going to try and do um, protein folding or something uh, in uh, my uh, head. You know, it's, right. it's a different that's thing. That's right? exactly right. That's exactly right. I, I think some of the magic of the human brain is is how little energy it consumes to do its work. Um, that, that's an extraordinary thing. And, you know, chemistry has some real advantages over, over electrical engineering in that front. Because chemistry is remarkably efficient. Um, on the other hand, we, we, we've had six years to, 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 to make a CS1, and, and, and evolution has had, what, 100 million years to make the human brain. And, and so we, we've had a little more time to, to produce an energy-efficient brain uh, evolution has than uh, than AI has had. I, I, I don't generally uh, think of them as as uh, I think they're um, m- massive data sorting and pattern identification machines, and this is really powerful in many domains. And I I, I think uh, the human brain is 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 one of the uh, Miracles of evolution. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that—that's uh, its capacity uh, uh, is truly uh, astonishing. Um, I think those of us who who, who build uh, uh, who build computers, we we're pretty clear that, that 
you know, we're adding and we're multiplying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. <laughs> right. We, yeah. We, we know what's going on in the machine, <laughs> yeah. Sally. We, but I, I think the the power of uh, of finding insight in vast data and being able to identify patterns, to let data lead you to conclusions, to, to do so at scales that the human brain hasn't evolved to handle. Um, to uh, the, 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 We have a great deal of good that can be done with that, that, that a lot of open space for for us to to harvest good with with artificial intelligence. Do you think we'll get to the point where we have more of a, a where we'll go beyond what silicon can do for us? I mean, you're right at the cutting edge. Uh, at what point is 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 where's the limit of silicon? Uh, are we are we are we almost there? When do we need to go to more like a, a chemistry type of approach? You know, I, I think you, you, you've had you, – there are other people that are, are, are far smarter than me on, on the, the, the future of, uh, of, of computational methodologies. Uh, we, we do know that, that chemistry and, and we've used in optimization theory some of the, the rules of physics to help guide us. I mean, there are annealing algorithms that try and uh, – Use what we see in uh, in the sort of in the scientific world to, to guide our algorithms. I, I think uh, our capacity for innovation. I mean, years ago people said, "Oh, you, you know, a decade ago you'd never get to seven or five, and now we're at seven, no problem, and five two. And they said, "Oh, three is impossible." And TSMC's got three around the corner. Oh, you'll never get one and a half or two. And there, there, there it is. And each time. Uh, innovation has, has carried the day. However, it's taken longer. It's cost more to build these plants. Uh, the, the gains have uh, not always been as big as we'd like, and sometimes the gains in logic, but not in memory. Uh, sometimes the gains uh, don't code the wires, so the communication links aren't as uh, can't keep up. Uh, it, but each time we, we've sort of come up to th this type of uh, hurdle, extraordinarily creative people ha have found ways around it. And I, I have great faith in, in the human brain's ability to invent and to find solutions to, uh, to hard problems. So on the, in the last episode of this, uh, this podcast, I spoke with the CEO of Synopsys, uh, the, the big, uh, EDA company, and he was talking about how we can use AI to design better chips then okay. even use it to design a better AI accelerator chip. Then you could yep. use these chips to accelerate the AI that designs the chips and you end up with this kind of sci-fi scenario where AI just becomes more and more powerful. Um, uh -huh. Do you think this is a realistic realistic scenario or, and if not, why not? Right, our Art de Goyce, right? Important thinker in our field and the, the work Synopsis has done in the company he's built is remarkable. Um, they're in the, the, the CAD tool business, and the CAD tool business is an extraordinary uh, data-driven uh, process. And uh, they've been using all sorts of, of different algorithms for generations to help us build better chips. They use uh, trees. They use annealing algorithms. They use uh, all sorts of heuristics to solve problems that are unbound. 
and AI serves uh, as a new tool in their arsenal uh, to identify uh, and improve uh, their results. And so I, I am not surprised that uh, uh, he, he is extremely bullish on, uh, as are we. Um, I, I think the Russian doll scenario where there's a doll inside of a doll inside of a doll and, and you, you know, and you end up with Skynet or Terminator. Um, uh, I, I'm uh, not so worried about that because <laughs> okay. every day we're in the trenches of trying to do it one step at a time. Um, but can, uh, can artificial intelligence help in the manufacturing? in the design of products, absolutely. Especially in problems as hard as chip design, where we're already using uh, mathematical heuristics to solve problems that are vastly too large for the human brain to comprehend. And so, uh, you know, this isn't in their field, this isn't some sort of revolutionary sea change. They have algorithms today, they're using mathematical techniques. This is a new mathematical technique based on uh, different foundation, but it, it, and in some places it will be better and in other places it will be worse. And, and so I, I think uh, we, we are extremely bullish on uh, the use of uh, artificial intelligence to improve many parts of, of the manufacturing workflow, including CAD tools, including chip design. Um, but do, do I think we are three years away from chips designing, you know, AI designing chips, designing chips, and, and some sort of infinite loop of, uh, of sci-fi-ness? Uh, don't hold your breath. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, so what next for Cerebrus? You've already got the biggest chip in the world and by quite some margin. Uh, where can you product roadmap possibly go from here? Bigger, faster, better. I yeah, think. even bigger yeah. than, bigger, this, bigger, than the whole wafer you've got now. Bigger, faster, better. I, I think we're, we're in a, you know, today GPT-3 takes thousands of graphics processing units four months, 130 days, something like that to train. That means you're using megawatts of power for months on end. There's only one or two companies on earth that can do that, sort of Google and Microsoft, to your. Um, uh, we we, we want to bring that to uh, to the masses. We we want to bring that horsepower, the the, the power to, to to bring your ideas to this massive compute. Um, we want to shrink that to down from months to to a day to a weekend. Um, I, I think the. Uh, there are opportunities algorithmically and in physical design and uh, in, in uh, throughout the, the design and manufacturing process to, to gain orders of magnitude more performance. And I, I think one of the, the great joys at Cerebris is we, we love doing fearless engineering. We, we, we love solving problems that other people say can't be solved. We, 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 we love... Uh, uh, hard problems. You know, we say if, if you know the answer when you start, it's not an interesting problem. And, and that's why we became engineers. 
<laughs> it's that yeah. journey is to solve problems sort of w- w- without a safety net. And uh, um, I, I think there's just in this space right now that there's an inordinate amount of opportunity, not just in the hardware, but but also in the algorithmic side. I mean, th- those AI practitioners who are uh, thinking about how to build more efficient models. I mean, you know, y- your software can't can't make flops, but it can sure use them more efficiently. And we've seen some really extraordinary work coming out of Google, out of Quoc Lee's group, in efficient net, where, you know, for the same flops, they're able to show vast improvements in, in um, accuracy. Uh, that's what we need. Uh, yeah. we, we, we need uh, the algorithms to, to take advantage of every ounce of, of compute horsepower that we can deliver them. Uh, and that the techniques there include sparsity, include um, optimum batch size, they include con- conditional computation, a whole collection of, of algorithmic inventions that are, are available to and are being worked on by leading edge uh, researchers in, in ML. Thank you very much, Andrew Feldman, for joining us on the podcast and for the interesting discussion. That brings us to the end of the episode. Please tune in again next time to hear more news and views on AI, machine learning, and the technologies that enable them. If you're listening to this on the podcast page at eetimes.com, links to articles on topics we've discussed are shown on your left. AI with Sally is brought to you by Aspen Core Media. The host is Sally Ward-Foxton and the producer is James Ede. Thanks for listening. Good. That, that's right. Now, now, now you got to go have a Marmite sandwich with uh, <laughs> tomato yeah. and cheese. I'm just about to have bangers and mash and drink a pint of warm beer, actually, uh, and some kippers and, uh, you know. Oh.